so gr growth is a natural phase but it's a phase it's a temporary phase mm -hmm. it's a transition from from one phase to another phase it might be a transition of you know of growth into a decline phase or it might be a transition from growth into a steady state or some sort of um oscillating kind of dynamic equilibrium um but it's never just a, a constant phase at one time horizon we have the urgency of addressing climate change what we need is phenomenal growth in uh the solutions to climate change uh, most notably the transition the energy transition away from a fossil fuel energy towards a, um, a renewable energy future. But then it's happening within a bigger story that we, or conversation that we're not having, at least not at the, um, at the levels that we need to be. We've got the degrowth um, conversation is, is making its way gradually in. So I wanted to first start off by getting a bit of introduction of who you are, James, and then we can dive into how you sort of came into this world of uh, degrowth or sustainability. And yeah, so love to get to know a bit about your story and how you ended up doing your research. Um, I'd love to be able to say, oh, well, well I just sort of, um, did, you know, did this and then and then that and had, had this, <laughs> this kind of linear trajectory. Yeah. But um, I guess the the backstory, the origin story. As a kid, very interested in the environment and um, and sort of writing letters to the editor and things like that, saying we need to stop using plastic <laughs> and polluting, and we need to stop cutting down trees, and in that kind of childlike sort of way. And yeah. then, you know, went went through university, studied engineering and uh, environmental management, and the timing of that. So I was at university in the um, started in the year two thousand. As an undergraduate student, so um, the for the benefit of uh, of your listeners who um, are, I'm guessing, university age, uh, stu uh, university student age um, now, so that we're sort of talking about maybe around about the time a lot of your listeners were born, we had the September 11 sort of terrorism um, and and following war in Iraq and there was a bit of a um, so I was a university student at the time of all of that crisis and I became very interested in left-wing ideas um, and got to the end of my degree and thought well I'd like to contribute to sort of the knowledge that might be part of the um, the solution to some of these systemic problems I don't want to graduate from my engineering degree and go and become sort of a, a cog in in a machine that is contributing more to what I, I perceive to be those problems. I've softened that view, I think, since then, because um, in part, because I'm now working at a university, uh, madly trying to graduate um, plenty of uh, engineering graduates to go and work in, in the system. And I think I have a different view of the role that people play than I did perhaps 20 years ago um, when I was starting to think, no, I wanna, you know, damn the system, I'm gonna go and do something else. Um, anyway, in that mindset as I was, what I went and did was I went into a PhD, immersed myself in sort of uh, environmental science, wasn't in a, a topic remotely related to um, to what we're talking about today. I was modeling how water flows in aquifers and things like that. It was quite interesting, but it was um, not connected to this. But at that time, as I was in that sort of immersed in knowledge and information, and um, as well as having come from that 
left-wing political sort of uh, uh, attraction, became very interested in limits to growth, became very interested in uh, peak oil, which, so now we're talking timeline, we've moved past September 11, we've moved past the start of the Iraq war, and we're now in circa 2005, 2007, and peak oil became this the lead up to the global financial crisis. Um, oil prices were ramping up. People were talking about running short on oil and reaching that inflection point or that turning point from a history of growing oil to a, uh, a future of declining oil. I became fascinated in that and realized there wasn't a lot of scientific research that's been done on it. So the transition in terms of my um, scholarly career has been starting to engage in that space in modeling those things. And uh, and sort of realizing, wow, we we really have a blind spot in um, the academic discourse when it comes to studying a future that isn't a growth future, right? We have, and so I was initially looking at that through the the potential of of this kind of coming energy shock, um, and then looking at how that blind spot actually, in in strange ways, it informs some of our predictions about things like climate change um, in, a, in a really strange way where you have um, our failure to conceptualize a future that is a declining future means that we conceptualize futures of massive growth in fossil fuels that generates um, outlandishly high sort of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it follows that the more greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the bigger the climate change problem and the less greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the less the climate change problem. And so this is a really interesting intersection between this idea of a potential future that doesn't have continued growth in emissions um, and what that might mean for climate change. But it also means when we're looking at the solutions to that problem in terms of changing from fossil fuels to renewable energy, um, if we again have that blind spot where we're not looking at futures outside of a growth future, we're only looking at growth futures, then we, we either have sort of on the one hand, a dirty growth future where we cook the planet, or on the other hand, we have a clean growth future where we solve the problem. And either way, we're growing and growing and growing. Everything's getting bigger. Uh, everything's getting more affluent. There's more people consuming more, and they're either doing it in a dirty way that kills the planet or in a clean way uh, that doesn't kill the planet. And they're the only futures that seem to be being considered in the mainstream. And so now we, in the time frame, we get back to 2016 when that paper was published that, um, that Jason Hickel has cited that you mentioned. So we take one year back, 2015, there was a study uh, led by scientists at CSIRO. Um, and it was basically a prediction of decoupling. I think it said, um, it didn't actually use the phrase, Australia can have its cake and eat it, but it was a phrase similar uh, to that. Essentially saying we can decouple uh, our uh, economic growth from our environmental impact. And it was a very comprehensive study published in Nature or a summary of it was published in Nature, attracted a lot of attention. Uh, and it really served the interests of the people who wanted to perpetuate this growth idea that it was saying we definitely need to move away from that dirty growth future but it was saying we've got this wonderful clean growth future and and we can miraculously 
solve the problems we know about. Essentially, the way I conceptualize it, or it's actually it's been better put by um, by others. <clears throat> One of my colleagues, Sharon Ede, um, refers to growth as the denial phase. You know, in the kind of the the grief, the phases of grief. Um, so. Is it, the, is it the denial phase or is it the, the bargaining phase? It might be the bargaining phase, mm -hmm. um, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of saying, okay, if I'm an economist and I have to believe in the, or the, the school of economic thought that I subscribe to is, is a, a growth school of thought, um, but I am also environmentally aware, how do I bring these two worlds together? Well, I bring it together with this idea of decoupling where then I can kind of say, ah, these are no longer in conflict. Somehow we can have our cake and we can eat it. Um, and so the paper that we wrote was really a response. It was initially, uh, we initially attempted to write a comment to nature to directly challenge the paper. <clears throat> but because what they presented was not um, they didn't make any kind of mathematical calculation errors. The, the parameters for, for submitting a comment um, in that journal, in some, um, in some journals, this is the way publishing works, unless you're actually saying there is an error here, um, you're not, th there's no case. Mm. Uh, you're not bringing a, a case um, against that paper. And the error really, as we were saying, was there was a philosophical error, mm. right? There, there was, yeah. Um, they didn't, if, if you subscribe to this idea that we can, uh, we can just keep growing, then, um, there's nothing technically wrong. And as long as you don't make your projections past a certain point in time, and they projected out to 2050. Um, so, uh, there was nothing mathematically incorrect in what they said, but the, uh, the nomenclature of decoupling was really what we were challenging mm. um so they're in speaking of nomenclature there are two basic forms of decoupling that are out there in the in the lexicon absolute and relative now absolute decoupling would imply that you have completely broken the link between um the the economic activity and the thing that you're trying to decouple from so a good example would be whale oil okay we don't currently have an economy that depends in any way on whale oil um a, a sort of a closer example historically would be um, lead in petrol. So nice. I'm old enough to remember leaded petrol uh, and when it was phased out and when, when we now fill up our, our vehicles with unleaded petrol, a lot of people perhaps um, aren't familiar with why it's called unleaded. It's a strange thing to put in front of petrol, but it used to have uh, a compound of lead in it. It was mm. horribly... Uh, damaging to human health and it was phased out we now no longer that, that, that's a decoupling so some of these things like ingredients that we can do without it's like cutting something out of your diet you can live without certain things um, mm. relative decoupling this is the sleight of hand so still ref is referred to as decoupling but relative decoupling and this is what a lot of that um, CSIRO work was based on it's where you say ah well the what's uh, we're defining that that the rate of growth of the economy is faster than the rate of growth of the impact. So we can grow the economy faster, and we're kind of getting out in front. Um, so what that really translates to, and I'm an engineer, so I think 
uh, in, in physical terms, this is talking about gaining efficiency. So if I'm driving in a car and say I'm driving in a manual car and I get out onto the, onto the freeway, onto the highway, and I start to move up through the gears, every time I change gears, my uh, rate of kind of speed increase relative to my rate of fuel consumption changes. So I'm able to relatively decouple because I'm moving faster um, while I'm not consuming that much more fuel. Mm if that makes sense. Have I decoupled my actual transport, my actual movement from the consumption of fuel? Of course not, it's still consuming fuel. Um, but that's the equivalent of, of this sort of relative decoupling. It's really just saying you're moving in, uh, in, into more efficient mm. uh, modes. So all we did, we did um, childishly simple set of calculations to, um, to basically say, well, if we accept that there are physical limits to that efficiency, then we can reinterpret those CSIRO predictions and, and see that if you extend the calculation beyond 2050, there's this rebound effect as you start to um, decrease. It's like a diminishing marginal returns kind of situation. You mm -hmm. get to a point where you can't get much more efficient. Um, and oh, then yes. okay. if you're continuing to grow, it's like when I reach the top gear in my car on the highway, if I want to then keep on accelerating, I've got no more opportunity to, to become more efficient. I don't have an infinite number of gears. Um, and so we saw that in all of the cases, um, those impacts were rebounding um, and that if you just extended it another 50 years uh, into the future, we'd be um, up well over where we started. So this idea that we can somehow halt the impact on the planet in order to um, keep growing our economy, it was demonstrably false. Mm. So that mm. was the basis for our um, our paper. At the same time, we sort of had a, used it as an opportunity to critique some of the underlying um, principles of decoupling. I think this is a good opportunity, James, to also dive into maybe the results of that research and uh, really unpick uh, what the implications of that are. Because if what the CSIRO is saying uh and perhaps it would be worth uh, expanding on the acronym of csiro because it even escapes me at this moment i just uh, commonwealth science and industrial research organization yeah yeah that's right yeah i think it'd be great to just expand on those the results of that study because if that if that's the case what what we what what yeah the research you've come across then uh that has really big implications for uh, how we live and how mm. we should operate in society mm. and yet uh, if I look around me, if I uh, if I uh, think about my business education along with my friends who are overseas that receive a similar business education, not much mm. concern for limits, uh, mm. with the continual perpetuating ideas of growth without any critical lens, I think mm. it's I think it's uh, not sufficient to have one lens, but multiple lenses, obviously, to expand your uh, ability to criticize ideas and you know making sure the best idea wins anyways that aside i think it'd be great to to you know dive into those results mm, mm. um yeah so it's it's difficult because that study um and what was it called it was called something like state of australia report but it wasn't called the state of australia report it escapes me now um but um it was actually it was a I feel conflicted because it was, on the one hand, a really optimistic vision 
of where we could go. And it was effectively saying, so I, I have to applaud the, the scientists who, who put so much time into, uh, into creating a, a, vi a vision for what the Australian economy could transition into, because it was sort of talking about, well, we go from a, um, a resource um, based heavy, heavy industry or heavy, heavy resource extractive industry type uh, uh, economy, high uh, reliance on coal and things like that to a future that is carbon farming and it's very green. Um, and it was a great, a great picture in, in some regards of that, what that transition could look like, but where it um, under delivered or it, it delivered, I think an unhelpful um, kind of conclusion was in, um, in that paper published in nature where they went out of their way to say um, Australia does not need to change its um, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing but essentially it's uh, society we do not need a societal yeah. transformation we can continue to have the same values ec economic values and it was it was very clearly talking about growth we do not need to hold the status quo in a sense yeah we do not need to challenge the way uh, and it actually listed sort of different um, archetypal sort of viewpoints um, in order to, to basically say, we don't need to go down any of these alternative paths that have been presented. We can maintain the growth path. And, um, and that's kind of a, a good message for capitalism. Um, so it, even within their own results, because they were relying on relative decoupling, which is where the economy grows faster than the underlying um, um, impact. If we take energy use, energy use was still growing. Um, so yes, we can go from fossil fuel uh, sources of energy to renewable sources of energy. But if we sort of say, look, there's gonna be a limit um, to how much energy we can produce even from re renewable sources, because there's only so many areas we can plaster solar panels all over or uh, or wind turbines or uh, other forms of renewable energy mm. we will eventually reach that limit too mm. um so the fact that it sort of the, the graph of the economy growing and the graph of the energy growing they were both graphs going up mm. so it mm. wasn't as though the energy graph was going down while the economy was going up which might be the thing the thing that i that frustrates me with the word decoupling um, and even if you look at, say, the I think it's the OECD's definition of decoupling in some manual from 20 years ago, it uses the phrase decoupling is about breaking the link. And that's, you know, coming from a, an engineering background, if, if one thing is coupled to another thing and we decouple them, that makes sense. In a, the metaphor is about breaking the link. So when you have two graphs that are going up, one of them might be going up steeper, uh, more steeply than the other graph. I don't see those as being decoupled. It's kind of like rather than breaking the link, we're kind of replacing it with more of an elastic thing. Yeah. So if we pull one, the other one's going to move with it. It's just going to kind of fall behind a little bit. But so in, in the results for energy, that was what was happening. So they, they had energy and they had materials and they were basically showing a dematerialization story. So mm -hmm. the um, they were going from a version of Australia that was this based on extractive industries and mining and things. And that um, basically meant that the starting uh, point for Australia is that it's actually quite a material intensive economy. 
mm-hmm. and they were um, essentially just mapping a transition to a far less materially intensive economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you stop the clock at 2050 during that transition, it looks good. It mm-hmm. looks like that is more like an absolute decoupling kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need some materials. And mm-hmm. so what we did was we sort of said, okay, well, let's look at where Australia currently sits in terms of how materially intensive and also how energy intensive is Australia mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. And then based on the predictions from that CSIRO modeling, where do they think Australia might be going? And, and in, in terms of when I say, where is Australia? I mean, relative to other economies, other, yeah. other countries and their material use and their energy use mm-hmm. um, in their economies. So we found Australia is already one of the most energy efficient economies in terms of the amount of GDP that we produce relative to the amount, to the amount of energy that we consume. So the idea that we're going to become substantially more efficient might be true, but it basically means we're going to become off the charts in terms of, um, if you look at a, a spread of current countries. The material story is a bit different because we're, all, we're currently one of the more materially intensive economies, or at least we were back in 2015 when the study was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the prediction then was that we were essentially going to go from one of the more materially intensive economies to become one of the uh, least intensive, least materially intensive economies. Mm. Um, but you can't become a zero material. I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you through anything if we had no, I wouldn't be yeah. wearing anything, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have a glass to drink this water out of um, if we became a zero material economy. It doesn't mm. make sense. So there's got to be some sort of limit. So in our results, what were in our modeling, we sort of took the the trajectory that they had and said, okay, well, let's take that as red. Let's take that as a a realistic trajectory. But it doesn't end at zero. We don't get down to zero material use. It's got to bottom off or bottom out really at at some minimum level. Um, Now, we're not going to predict what that minimum level, we're not going to specify ahead of time what that level is um so i think we we just allowed the model to basically kind of find find a level no that's not true we did specify it apologies we specified it but i think at half the level that they said was kind of like the the ultimate level so we sort of said okay you've been optimistic already going from the most material one of the the most materially intensive economies to one of Mm. the least and then we're going to say let's continue that trend down another 50 percent less so we can become kind of off the charts or certainly at the at the lowest end of material use mm, mm. Um, and i think the energy story was they were already predicting that we'd go off the charts based on current economies and we said well let's go even further but let's recognize that there are physical limits um, that there are physical limits to how materially efficient your economy can be and mm. how energy efficient your economy can be mm. and once you sort of say, okay, well, once we reach those, we're going to bottom out at those efficiency limits, then any further growth, and we just used the, um, just extrapolated that around about a 3% per annum uh, growth in economy, that's uh, total GDP. Mm-hmm. So that accounts for, um, I think that's, that's right. I think it was 3% total um, accounting for per capita and population growth. Yeah. yeah. So just extrapolating that trend out then 
we, we just found that the material use inflected so it, yeah yeah it, it followed obviously it followed their um their prediction to 2050 and then it started to rebound and i think it got back up to about 1.3 times where it started from so it had this kind of uh, temporary decoupling. It was never decoupled. It was just getting more efficient, and then uh, and then the growth took took over again, and it went back up and ended up um, higher. Yeah. The energy story, if memory serves, ended up. Um, these are all. It's an open access paper. Find um, mm. all the graphs. The energy story. I think. It, well, it never went down because it was only ever a relative decoupling story. But I believe that it ended up at something like three or three and a half times mm. the starting point. Um, so there's just, <clears throat> there was, unless you subscribe to this idea that you can call something decoupling when both things are still connected, which mm -hmm. to me is, is an oxymoron to begin with. Yes. yes. Um, so misappropriation of the term decoupling, and then you shouldn't be using the term decoupling anyway. Mm. Um, so, um, if you subscribe to that idea that you can somehow call this thing decoupling when it's not then the story is well okay the economy grew by a factor of whatever it was seven or eight yeah. over this projection and the um uh, energy use grew by a factor of three or four wow. uh, so it was um uh, and that was based on continuing the idea of very very optimistic efficiency gains yeah 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 so, I mean, I think a good way to summarize it would be to just read a, a very small extract from your paper, which I pulled, which I thought was, which is a fantastic summary of the paper, which you mentioned and your team mentions that our model demonstrates that growth in GDP ultimately cannot be plausibly be decoupled from growth in material and energy use, demonstrating categorically that GDP growth cannot be sustained indefinitely. And so, and then you go on to say it is therefore misleading to develop growth-oriented policy around the expectation that decoupling is possible, which I think is is a, it perfectly summarizes your point that you know if energy consumption and material consumption still goes up with growth, even if it's relatively decoupled, then uh, the impact is still going to be great because if economy grows every if economy grows three percent every twenty to every twenty three years, it doubles. It doubles every 23 years, I should say. So that means yeah. in like five, in, in 50 years time, then, you know, it's, it's like doubling like twice or, and, go, and it keeps going yeah. on. And so, yeah. Um, I guess that's a problem, right? So what, what, do you have any ideas of what we do about that? Because to me, that's, that's quite a stark, uh, uh, I mean, you were mentioning earlier that you, it's quite optimistic that, you know, you were able to come up with such a great, uh, uh, with such a great result in terms of what you found. And at the same time, I'm sure it would have uh, uh, be quite uncomfortable to, to see that, you know, the leading science body is coming up with that paper, which is sort of upholding status quo. Mm. Um, and if you just tweak the model slightly, you can see that, that, uh, that it would be problematic. Right. So it's not about tweaking the model. It's about applying. I would say it's about applying common sense. I mean, yeah, the, I, I'm almost embarrassed by how simplistic our um, our calculation was. It did not take anything beyond about high school level maths mm. to to make it clear. Like it doesn't take anything beyond high school maths to basically show that continued growth makes no sense, and it doesn't. 
yeah it's so intuitive like, i mean i think that's why uh degrowth uh in a sense in a sense is a i think quite a powerful idea because uh yeah. lay people are able to easily conceptualize that mm. if there's limits to things you can't keep them growing and yet it seems as though policymakers uh which obviously are elected by their constituency so perhaps it's not the policymakers fault it's the constituency's fault but in a sense it seems very strange that there's a, a quite an adverse reaction to uh questioning that status quo it is it is bizarre um there's absolutely nothing um in the universe that grows forever exponentially um you know we stop growing as organisms um trees stop growing as organisms you know they they so gr growth is a natural phase but it's a phase it's a temporary phase mm -hmm. it's a transition from from one phase to another phase it might be a transition of you know of growth into a decline phase or it might be a transition from growth into a steady state or some sort of um oscillating kind of dynamic equilibrium um but it's never just a a constant phase um so it's baffling it continues to be baffling to me mm. that uh we can delude ourselves into thinking growth is the normal state to be mm. in and um so i'm and that's and including gr green growth correct james because yeah. essentially what your paper is saying is that you know even if you were to invest in all these sorts of green ideas uh you know renewable technology as important as they are to you know transition away from uh, fossil fuels um even if you were to invest completely in in green technologies adopt something like a green new deal where the idea is to grow as a result of investing in these green technologies nevertheless decouple uh, your paper shows that in eventually in 50 years time or more that it's going to have devastating impacts on the environment and as if things are not as bad uh, are not bad enough as they are yeah. you know even just the recent IPCC report said it the said it was red alert. It's it's uh, mm -hmm. this is not the time to to uh, to uh, have discussions sim uh, without any intent of changing about growth. Yeah. So we've got a complicated situation on our hands because um, we and it's it's about kind of um, the scope of uh, and, and the time horizon. So the um, on at one time horizon we have the urgency of addressing climate change what we need is phenomenal growth in uh the solutions to climate change uh, most notably the transition the energy transition away from a fossil fuel energy towards a um a renewable energy future on the longer time horizon that so that's a circa you know say one decade to three decades kind of conversation if you if you look at a one and a half degree future 50 percent reduction in emissions by 2030 that's eight years away less than eight years away uh 100 reduction down to net zero by about 2050 that's only another two decades so that's that's the uh, well and truly within the career span of um everyone who's currently at university or at a university age um uh, entering the workforce or studying right now is anticipating a career span that we should see that transition completed within within that time frame all right so um so we've got that which is a growth story and if i was uh, a company involved in 
uh, in renewable energy technology, I'd be super excited about the growth potential because so, so there's that happening, but then it's happening within a bigger story that we, or conversation that we're not having, at least not at the, um, at the levels that we need to be. We've got the degrowth um, conversation is, is making its way gradually in, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second, but um, by and large, our, uh, our society is not having the conversation at that sort of beyond the 2050, so to the 2100 or 2200, or actually starting to think on these long time scales, mm -hmm. which seem in some, in some cases, I think part of the issue is that people assume those sorts of timeframes are irrelevant. And we, that's where we need to actually say, well, hang on a minute. Um, we have continuous cultures in this country, in Australia, that have been uh, going for at, you know, at best kind of, um, according to sort of Western, Western estimates, tens of thousands of years. Um, and, um, and according to First Nations people, uh, since time immemorial. So we're definitely able to think about mm. continuity of culture over, if we can think of continuity of culture over tens of thousands of years, why can't we think about it over a timescale of at least a few centuries? And if we're talking about at least a few centuries, then we're definitely, if you try and extrapolate a 3% growth trend, uh, even a 1% growth trend, you get to quite outlandish numbers over those sorts of time frames mm. so we need to be having that bigger conversation i was at a um, a screening of regenerative uh, regenerating australia the film um, by damon gamo a follow-up to uh to his film 2040 both excellent films i highly recommend you uh find your way to a screening if you haven't um and the one i was at uh two nights ago um was followed by a, a Q and A session with uh, with Damon, the filmmaker, and um, it was absolutely fantastic. He was so good at answering these questions. He's crafting a vision for a future, and he's not shying away from these issues. But he was asked about this the same question, and he used the phrase, "You know, we need a very adult conversation," and it's not a conversation that we've had yet because the intersection between the need to, on the one hand, grow our renewable future while on the other hand do that within a future that is going to stop growing that's a complicated conversation mm. and it intersects with our cultural norms from the at least from the the couple of hundred years of um since the industrial revolution where we have become accustomed to each successive generation inheriting sort of more material um I guess, well, inheriting material progress. So mm. uh, what is now normal in terms of access to computers, the ability to do what we're doing right now yeah. was not normal a generation ago. But what was normal a generation ago, what was not normal, you know, the ability to um, get in an aeroplane mm. And, mm. and sort of and reasonably accessibly kind of get virtually anywhere on the planet wasn't as accessible a generation before that. Mm. That generation was able to get in a car, which was a lot less accessible a generation before that. And we, we're kind of accustomed to this story. And it's kind of like, well, really exciting what the next generation will get. That's, that's affected 
mm. when we start to that that narrative is is seriously impacted by the recognition that we're actually transitioning out of that industrial revolution fossil fuel fueled growth story into a renewable mm. fueled non-growth story mm-hmm. and that narrative is a is one we are struggling with yeah yeah i i think i mean there's so many cool things there um james uh, the the first thing i wanted to comment on quickly is this idea called value lock-in um so there's a book that was recently published by this philosopher called william mccaskill and he he argues for a million year uh, a million year worldview where we conceptualize a future not only to like maybe our kids or their kids but multiple generations ahead and really thinking and wrestling with hard questions and existential risks that are actually threatening us like climate uh, artificial intelligence things like this and and asking if we were to conquer these really big problems how we could our, our species could go on to millions of years if if we are able to fight off the challenges that we face um, and one of the concepts he uh, includes in the book uh, I haven't read it I've just watched a lot of podcasts about the book but I'm I'm venturing to read it when I get the time is this idea called value lock-in which is essentially where an idea permeates a culture so deeply that it sustains itself uh, multiple generations so f- for example I, I see the religion is a good idea of a good uh, way of conceptualizing value locking where this idea of God religion sustains itself millennia and it remains till today. And I see growth as a very similar thing where this idea of growth from the 1700s, 1600s onwards has remained uh, ever present in our culture. And it's so much, it's so embedded that even our scientists who are creating models on the next hundred years included in the in, included in the base assumption so that i mean the, perhaps that's an indictment but i see it more as a as a as a indication or a reflection of where our culture is and so i suppose this is a long way of saying that we have to be good ancestors where we uh where we can really say okay i mean 100 years is great but what about a thousand years like if we destroy the planet in 900 years it's not going to be much good beyond that right so we have to make sure how do we figure out to sustain ourselves in, I guess, in a million year worldview. Um, and then I guess the last comment I'll say is that change seems to be, I mean, you're alluding to it, that we need some sort of really deep fundamental change where we change the norms in which, how we live, the ways we live. Um, I, I saw that you write some papers on like hydroponic uh, plants and stuff. And I, I've talked to someone about this where you just, you know, have all these plants growing in like really small spaces with really efficient water systems, you know, just basically changing everything from, you know, how we plant food, how, what we eat, you know, where we eat, where we live, like those fundamental changes. Um, So I, I, uh, I don't know, this is just a way of me saying that I, I I agree with you. Well, that's great. Um, Um, I think some of those things, um, yeah, million year worldview, that can be a difficult, that's a difficult concept. A thousand yeah. year worldview is is difficult enough. Mm. And, and and probably a thousand year worldview is good enough for now in terms yeah. of moving the conversation beyond um, yes. 
yeah. like a twenty a twenty fifty worldview. Because the problem with the twenty fifty worldview is you can we can be inclined to think if we can get those emissions down to zero by twenty fifty, that's it. Problem solved. We move on. Green growth. Here we come. Um, so we need to contextualize our the urgency of the climate problem within mm. at least a. And I mean, a thousand year worldview would be good enough for now. And then maybe we can yeah. expand that once we start to um, uncover problems that uh, are relevant over a longer time frame. Mm. Um, so, and even at, at a thousand years, if you do any sort of um, back of the envelope calculation, you can do it in, in a spreadsheet if you want to do a little exponential growth <laughs> function on yeah. 1% growth for a thousand years, you'd be astonished at the sorts of numbers you get to and whatever you're starting with. If you want to start with population, if you want to start with energy consumption, you get to crazy yeah. numbers. It doesn't matter whether that energy comes from renewable energy. I mean, over mm. these sorts of fairly modest, like a couple of thousand year time frame, you can mm. do these calculations that say, well, let's imagine our energy grows at whatever it's currently growing at a couple of percent per year. Yeah. Um, extend that out a few thousand years, you get to the point where all of that, and let's imagine it's beautiful, clean, green, renewable energy the energy being emanated from all of the solar panels and wind turbines would need to be equivalent to the entire output of the sun. Like it's just, it, it gets to these stupid, meaninglessly large numbers that yeah. may mean that you can challenge that growth paradigm very, very quickly. Yeah. So, the, so the stories that we need, um, well, we need stories basically. That's why I'm a big Narrative, fan of, yeah. of the work that Damon Gamow is doing um, because he's a storyteller. Um, and in terms of, you alluded to some of this other uh, research that I've been involved in to do with urban agriculture and things like that. The reason that I'm attracted to that is not because I, I see some high tech, I mean, I've, I've got some interest in some of this high tech, these high tech ideas, but it's not because I, I think the future is gonna be this incredibly high tech future. It's actually related back to the concept of growth and that, brings us to the system of scale and mm. really it's a capitalism and kind of a power story mm. so why does growth exist and why has growth become the dominant that multi-generational sort of story that you've talked about throughout the industrial revolution mm. it is actually intimately connected to the industrial revolution because when you have uh, a powerful rich person who is able to replace workers with a machine, then we're talking about becoming, uh, we're talking about systems of production becoming extremely labor efficient and a wonderful way to return money back to the person with them who had the money in the first place because they, they can now spend their capital on machines that do the work, they displace the workers. Mm. Um, and so that creates on a societal level an imperative for growth because all of those displaced workers have to find employment somewhere else. So society effectively has to continue to reinvent itself to find um, gainful employment for all the people who keep being displaced by mm. the industrialization, mm. um, the machines of industrialization. And so we have this growth story and the recurring theme here is that the people with the power and the money then are able to continue to push the people without the power and the money out further and further the system grows as a result and you have more and more concentration of, of wealth and power um in the industrialists if you like yeah so that way of decentralizing power in order to help 
those who may not have had the means to have the means. Right. So, so if you take agriculture as an example, then you can see this. You can actually see it borne out in the data over my lifetime. The average uh, size of a farm in Australia has doubled. So, uh, and and the average and or the, the proportion of the workforce employed in sort of the forestry and agriculture sector has halved. So basically, we're seeing a hollowing out of that um, mm. means of production, or rather, a a displacement of people from that mm. means of production. And now it's large tracts of land being tended by ever increasing uh, sort of uh, more machines of ever increasing size. Mm. So that's that's a, a tangible example. We've all if you've if you've been into a farming area at um, at seeding time or at harvesting time, you will have seen the size of some of these machines, especially in the cereal growing areas. Mm. So um, now this flip side to that is that part of that story has uh, probably made farming quite efficient mm -hmm. in some regards. And I think there's some unresolved questions around um, the sort of efficient um, yeah. scale. But thinking about it from that system of growth point of view, mm. if we have other uh, areas of, uh, of the economy where these same sorts of trends have happened and more and more automation has yeah. pushed people into other um, other jobs uh, or even other industries while the machines basically return profits back to the, the people who own them mm, yeah. um, then that's a system that is optimized around the idea that um, that we want to maximize the amount of money being returned to the shareholder um, and so it rewards capital mm. and it, it basically says the the aim of the game is to become more labor efficient mm. so this productivity uh, idea the amount of gdp generated per unit of uh, of work being done yeah so it's it's kind of a noble goal in a way but it's because it's kind of saying we want our economy to to produce more for the yeah. amount of work but the unintended consequence is that the whole thing grows and keeps pushing people out if we yes. repivot that optimization around um more of a, a social objective we might find that we actually start to turn the the cycle back around on itself mm. so instead of having this ever-increasing scale where you go to something that's bigger you then spend less on labor that returns more profit so you can spend it on an even bigger machine to push out even more labor to displace even more labor to return an even bigger profit and this cycle just gets bigger instead what if we could bring that back around the other way mm. where the output of that optimization would be more and more jobs for people yeah optimal scale appropriate mm. technology and uh, so sort of having yeah. having a societal or, or a business uh, model that is geared around that rather than the idea that we need to continually improve mm. productivity sorry you're trying to say something and i keep talking no no, no i i think uh, i was just going to comment and just i think tie what we've all been talking about into that one point that you're making which i think is the the one of the main points i would say is that me metrics like gdp uh even if they are to grow uh con consistently you know two to three percent every year for a number of years they don't necessarily account for the needs of people and their individual share of wealth. So it does a really good job of capturing, you know, general economic activity and 
assisting those who have the means of production and uh, 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 helping them generate even more wealth, but it doesn't necessarily help with that distribution of wealth. It doesn't necessarily help with improving well-being on average. It doesn't help those specific needs. And so it, overall, all the things, you know, such as uh, your example, you know, like urban agriculture, uh, this is a way or a signal to say that we want to account for the needs of people and uh, that one of those needs is, you know, making sure that we have enough money to live the way that we would like to live through, you know, farming uh, and doing those things. Uh, we want to make sure that we meet people's needs in the best possible way. And so addressing limits in a way that, uh, in, a, in a way that accounts for people's needs and well-being seems like the overall message. Um, and I feel like perhaps more right-leaning people will be very uh, concerned of the manner in which we're speaking in the sense of, you know, we need to overturn everyone that has a lot of wealth, you know, do like a 99% tax, get rid of all their wealth, distribute it evenly. Um, well, I don't necessarily think that's the point of this discussion more say it's to say that this system perpetuates a certain uh, idea and ideology and degrowth or things like this are essentially asking us just to take into account limits and then take into account people's needs and well-being and essentially aim to improve those things. And I don't think that's a radical idea at all. I think that's uh, quite a rational idea. Um, I think it comes and, back to common sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think of GDP like um, using a, going back to the car metaphor. So imagine all of the gauges and, and things on the dashboard. So you've got a, you've got a, uh, a fuel gauge, you've got a temperature gauge, you've got uh, the, the speedo, you've got the, uh, the tachometer, how many revs you're doing, maybe a few other gauges there. Imagine just mushing all of those into a single gauge that just says vehicle activity. And you're driving along and you're just watching that gauge. Yeah. Um, it tells you nothing of any use. And that's essentially GDP. GDP aggregates all of the, the activity that's happening. And it doesn't tell you how much of that activity is good, how, how much of that is, uh, is compatible with well-being or is actually against well-being. Mm. And so really, we're just talking about um, looking at the right, uh, the right measures. Some things are some of the best things in life can't be measured um, mm. anyway. And so we need to maybe have a more of a qualitative view with yeah. some of this stuff as well. Yeah. But I don't think that it's, it, it shouldn't be, now it might be, but it, it shouldn't be so controversial to say, mm. hey, maybe, um, maybe the things that we measure in our economy should actually reflect mm societal well-being yes yeah and i think why is that, that such a controversial idea I, I think i think if i was to play devil's advocate maybe even framing it as we have to measure the right things people may take issue well this is just another way of you uh, trying to insert and shoehorn ideas of limits into our fantastic eccentric way of living i want to be able to buy three cars and uh eat as much meat as I like. I mean, I think perhaps to change the wording, perhaps even not framing it as right, but just trying to find metrics that multiple metrics rather than one metric to conceive of a life uh, that mm -hmm. is worth living. And I don't think that's radical at all. I think, like you said, it's common sense. 
And yeah, I think I think that this is the uh, some of the basis for the donut economics yeah. um, approach, which is a, a, a clever way of kind of creating a dashboard um, that that allows you to kind of in in one place. It's okay. It's not a, a point on a graph, but it's a you can look at it and give you a snapshot in time, and you can look at one of those um, donut economics plots, and you can go to the to Kate Rayworth's uh, website and see a, a really nice interactive graphic that illustrates this, um, how it can be used as a dashboard. Mm. And, you know, you can sort of stand on the other side of the room and look at it. And if it's got heaps of red emanating out from the outsides of the donut, that means that you're exceeding planetary boundaries and they should all be brought back into the, the outer ring of the donut. And if it's got heaps of red um, poking in from uh, the center in, in the hole of the donut, then you know you're not meeting the, the sort of mm. the minimum um, requirements in terms of human well-being. So if you just looked at it from a distance and you just saw a nice green ring with no red on the outside and no red on the inside, then um, you'd be like, oh, that's a that's a good society. That's living within its limits, yeah. and it's providing uh, the means uh, for for people to yeah. live a good life. So th these alternative ways of us actually um, framing the purpose of the economy. And, yeah. and what it means to be living well and to have an economy that is doing a good job of, uh, mm. uh, of delivering the needs of the people within the limits that we have to live in, that shouldn't be controversial. And I think we, we can actually start calling bullshit on people who try to say that is controversial. And we can say, well, what, what do you think we should be doing then? Yeah. And if what, they want to say- What is the good life? Sorry? What is the good life, you know? I mean, yeah. Well, well, how would you? Um, and I, I think we can push back when people start to say things that imply there aren't limits. The biggest challenge we have there is that some of the richest men in the world, and they are men, um, and that might be a problem that for, for another that we could talk about in, in another episode. Or you should probably get <laughs> a, a very different voice to mine to talk about that. But yeah. um, the richest men in the world are currently perpetuating an idea that we are going to overcome this problem ultimately uh, by finding other planets to live on. And that is unfortunately mm. sitting there as these, you know, we, we have these stories that we tell ourselves about superheroes and things like that. Mm. And, and we are, there is a, a part of us that is inclined to believe mm. that, these superhero billionaires are going to somehow break through these limits and we're going to become one of those um, those societies that we've read about in science fiction or watched in movies and things like yeah. that. And that's that's problematic to this discourse, yeah. I think. But it's but probably James, James, haven't you seen their space their spacesuits? They're so cool. No, I'm joking. Oh, um, yeah, way cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, no, I think, like you said, that it plays into our narratives and our myths of having a hero or someone to come and save the day, which is very compelling because uh, from as young as we were, these stories resonate with us and we can identify with them very easily. Mm. Um, and a part of the podcast that we try to do is think about alternative narratives or ways of living, because like you've identified, uh, that's how people think. People uh, don't necessarily think in facts obviously we use facts to inform our stories but mm. we construct a story of our, our lives um, what we find is meaningful to us mm. and based on that we 
make decisions. I mean, that's uh, maybe very pseudo psychology, but that's just my sense from speaking to all sorts of people on the podcast with, with Shashwat. Um, mm. I think this would be a good way of wrapping up and getting a sense from you. So I think we were a bit largely in agreement. Um, and I think this would call for another podcast where perhaps we bring in a multiple people to debate these ideas, mm. because I like, I'd like to suspend my worldview and see if, see if maybe uh, the hegemony of growth is uh, is the way to go but um uh, what is the way of what is the way forward james in terms of uh, the economy or you know what do we do we just need to value well-being and uh, environmental impact and we'll be you know it'll be happy days or like what what do you see as the the way forward well i mean i, I think there's the way forward okay let's um <clears throat> try and sum this up in a few ways so we've already talked about there's the the immediate challenge for the next for the for the duration of everyone's career who's let's say who's or most people's career who are listening to your podcast or watching um that's the climate challenge and and the energy transition there's the in damon gamo's words very adult conversation that we need to have about the what we might call a thousand year time horizon or longer then there's the so that there's those two things, but then there's the here and now. And so to, to um, riff off the name of your podcast, Utopia is Now, I would challenge everyone to actually start thinking about really tangible here and now stories that we can start talking about that aren't growth dependent. So I'm thinking, okay, let's imagine you support a football team and, and it's the start of the footy season. Do you get out your spreadsheet from last year and say, okay, how many goals did we kick? How many points did we score? And I'm just going to apply my three percent uh, uh, compound. And we and my our target for the team is this many goals and this many points and um, and this many wins and so on. You know, if if you um, grow pumpkins, do you sort of weigh all of your pumpkins and then say, right, three percent or five percent growth this year? My target is. Uh, 25.7 kilograms of pumpkins because that's 3% more than last year. No, you just look forward to the season and you hope it's going to be a good season. Okay, if you're into fishing, likewise, if you're into whatever, we actually have these stories. Um, we have things that we look forward to. And I think it's part of that cyclical thing. You know, um, if you have a, if you celebrate Christmas, you know, you don't sort of think, oh, right, well, uh, my target number of gifts this year is x because x is three percent more than last year you look forward to it for different reasons you look forward to seeing the people you look forward to the food and drink you might look forward to the presence but not in that kind of quantitative growth way um, and so i think we can tell ourselves these narratives and tell other people these narratives mm -hmm. because they actually are indicative that we whilst we we have deluded ourselves thanks to the industrial revolution and then a lot of great things have come out of that those successive yeah. technological changes we don't actually we're not actually that far from a non-growth mindset and we don't have to look very far we don't have to scratch below the surface to realize that all those things that bring us joy are not actually uh growth things mm. they're things that and so i think that um maybe you were already on that which is why you came up with utopia is now but uh, I think it's within our grasp. So well, I have to leave it as a mystery. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, uh, no, I think just to summarize that, because it's, I think, quite an interesting way of conceiving of how to, I guess, fight the good fight in a sense, is that uh, to think of, uh, to challenge growth, not only in like 
in a in political discourse, but in the discourse of our everyday life when it comes to Christmas or what we're growing in our garden, or maybe even if you have kids, you know, what 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 is the what is a good way to improve my child's grades? Is it to ensure that they're studying three percent more every every night or is it to find more effective ways of studying and i think that's the Mm. subtle nuance of limits is not saying completely end progress it is saying stop seeing progress as expansion progress Mm. or prosperity can be conceived of doing things smarter and better not necessarily have to constantly expand and expand and i think that's the subtle nuance in which you Mm. uh uh illustrated through those examples um and yeah, I think that's a fantastic message and way to sort of go forward. Uh, very, very lastly, James, is there, we asked all of our guests this question, which is obviously related to utopia. Uh, if you want to tell a story, we'd love to know what your utopia looks like in as many or few words as you like. Mm. Um, utopia is not a busy place. <laughs> Um, Utopia is a place where people have time um, for one another and um, and for the things that matter. Uh, I think that's part of what gets us into the problem. (laughs) People are too busy to actually spend the time thinking about it. So I think that if we've solved the problem, presumably part of that is is that people are going to have a lot more time to focus Mm. on on things. Humble things that we might consider to be humble like growing pumpkins in the backyard or going fishing or something uh, yeah something like that mm. a, sim- a simpler way of being mm. yeah voluntary simplicity as a there's a name of once institute uh, by a professor in melbourne who oh samuel a... alexander yeah that's right yeah yeah um, excellent yeah absolutely well look i think that wraps everything up very well james thank you uh, very much for coming on the podcast it was a pleasure and uh, I'd love to have you on again uh, hopefully with our co-host next time I'd love that thanks so much for having me it's been wonderful talking with you